Well, we are in the uh, letter to the Colossians. I, I think it is amazing. Uh, you know, creation is the very thing that drew me to thoughts about God, and then I became a Christian. So God has given us creation as a signpost pointing to himself. And then, um, then God comes himself in the person of Jesus to show us what God is like and to make a way back to him possible. And then he gives us his word, the Bible, so that we can know what God is like and know how to go at life his way. I love that. And so the, the, Paul's letter to the Colossians is one slice of God's word to us, and it's a very important slice. And so just a couple weeks ago, we handed out a card with a reading guide uh, prompting you, hopefully, to read Colossians through with us as we go through this short six-week series. Uh, if you don't have that, I think it's in your bulletin today, What to Read. But we're just really hoping you'll read along with us. Uh, I'll talk about the importance of reading God's Word a couple more times in this message, but uh, please consider that. Uh, last week, Joe introduced us to the book of Colossians, which was written by the Apostle Paul when he was imprisoned uh, in Rome. And he wrote a couple other letters, companion letters to Colossians, the, book, the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Philippians. And those three letters, those three prison letters, are sort of patterned the same way. The first half of the letter tends to be theology. The second half of the letter tends to be practical living. In other words, we become what we think, or we become whatever our theology is. And I'll address that later on in the message. Uh, last week, the, the big idea that Joe was getting across is something like this. The object of our faith determines the outcome of our lives. That is, what we believe about Jesus will determine not just my eternity, but how I go at life right now. Have you figured out who Jesus is to you? The object of your faith is everything. Today, what we're going to do is... Uh, is start again in the first half of the letter. So there's some theology there, but Paul gradually introduces us to the natural outworking of our theology, how it should show up in our everyday lives. And we'll actually end the service with these two verses. These are our two memory verses. Um, and this is chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him, let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith, then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Let's leave that on the screen just for a moment. I love that. Let your roots grow down into him. When I was a younger Christian, I was invited into a study, a Christian study where we, it was a rather intensive study where we, we looked at the various scriptures and concepts from God's word that could help us know how to send our roots down into Christ so we could learn how to let our lives be built on him so that we could grow up. And so the, 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 the diagram that was on the front of that curriculum we used, and it's on the front of the bulletin we hand out, featured in this series, is this, this strong, robust tree with roots underground. Isn't that something? You know, the, the tree is featured 
in Scripture. Did you know that? The very beginning of the Bible, you have the tree of life. The very end of the Bible, you have the tree of life. And in between all sorts of trees, for example, in the book of Psalms, the very first psalm, a a, a person is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears much fruit when that person stays close to God and his word. Or you come to uh, the book of Galatians and Paul talks about the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of the trees of our lives and love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. You have like the, the book of Isaiah where the prophet writes about the, about the person who is like a strong oak of righteousness. So Paul says, let your roots go down deeply. Let your life be built on Christ so you can be a tall, strong tree. To be the, the kind of person God has in, intended you to be. And in just a little while, as we come near the end of this message, we'll go into chapter 3, and we'll see some of, the, some of the words that Paul uses to describe a person who is a s- strong, tall tree. Somebody who sent their roots down deep. Somebody who is, has kind-hearted mercy. Somebody who has humility gentleness, patience, all of that wrapped up in the virtue of love. And I I hear those things and I think I want those things to represent my life. I'm not so sure they do very often. I, I, I do know this too, that the people closest to me want those virtues to be represented in my life. They need those to be represented in my life. And those fruit are the result of a deeply rooted faith that's built on Christ, that's true for me, and that's true for you. Why, why settle for being a shrub when we can grow up and be a tall, strong tree that's deeply rooted in our faith in Christ? But how do we get there? How do we get there? How do we become a person of faith? A person who has these characteristics I just mentioned represented in our lives. And that's where Paul takes us in chapter 2 into chapter 3. And what we find are, there are two things we must understand. God has a role, and I have a role. God has a role to play, and you have a role to play. And we need to understand both of those so we can live out the new life that God has provided those who have placed their faith in Christ. So let's take a look at God's role first and pick it up in chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul writes, You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sin. So what Paul is saying is the starting point for all of us if we want these virtues represented in our lives, is we must have new life. And it is God alone who can inject this new life into us. But Paul says there's a problem. We are born into this world, not just with a problem. It's worse than that. It's worse than that. We are spiritually dead, he says. We, it's like we are spiritual corpses dead to God. 
It's not just medicine we need, it is resuscitation. And we need this spiritual life that only God can provide for us. Jesus called it being born again. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, remember I said it's a companion letter, he wrote from prison. He writes, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. There's that word dead again. Because of our sin, we are spiritually dead. And this is not a comfortable thing to talk about. I was talking with someone recently, a younger guy, and we got into the topic of sin, and I get it. It's sort of an ugly term. Culturally, it's not very acceptable, but he was convinced that he had never really sinned. I mean, fine with using the word, I messed up, or I blew it, or I made a mistake. That's much easier for me to admit, but let's be honest. There is a difference between a mistake and a sin. A mistake is something that is unintentional. It's something that we do. That it's, maybe it's a misjudgment. A sin is a deliberate choice to do something we know is wrong or a deliberate choice to not do something where we know it's the right course of action. And for every one of us in this room, not all the time, but we feel it, that, 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 that bent toward sin. No one had to teach us how to say mine when we were little, right? That's who we are. So because of our sin, we are born into the world spiritually dead. But, but here's the good news that Paul wants us to see. Let's go back to that verse, the, the second sentence. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he, forgave, for he forgave our sins. How did God make us alive? He forgave our sins. But how did he make that happen? And that's where Paul takes us next. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Now, that last couple of sentences, that's been confusing for a lot of people over the years, and there's disagreement as to what it means. It's verse 15. Basically, I think what he's saying, whoever stood in the way of Jesus, whether it was people or spiritual forces, through Jesus' death and resurrection, he showed them that he was able to release people from their sins and spiritual death. Now, the, the phrase, record of the charges, it's, it's, a, it's, sort of a, it's a Greek phrase from the original language. It was like an IOU signed by hand obligating the signer to repay the debt. Maybe you have an IOU out there and you have to repay your debt. Paul's idea seems to be that the sins of mankind, including yours and mine, had piled up as a list of IOUs so large that they could never be repaid by you and me. So God had to step into the gap and repay what you and I could not repay. One of my favorite definitions for the good news, the gospel, is that God has done for us through Christ what we could never do for ourselves. One of my favorite theological references is this, and, and this is what it says from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. When a criminal was crucified, the charges against him were written down and nailed to the cross. The debt, or the record of the charges, as Paul wrote, was impossible for us to pay, but God dealt with it. He had blotted it out and canceled the bond by nailing it to the cross. This is a vivid way of saying that because Christ was nailed to the cross, our debt has been completely 
forgiven. In short, Jesus died so we could have life. Jesus died so we could have life. Now, in a, in a diagram way, it would look something like this. There's you, there's me, and there's Christ, right? And so Jesus takes our sin onto himself, and in return, he gives us light. Martin Luther, life. Martin Luther called this the great transaction. So God, by his grace and because of our faith, gives us new life. Jesus takes our old life, and now we are to live out that new life. So God has done his part. That was his role. God has given us new life through Christ. If we believe in Jesus, we are given new life. Here's the question now. God's done his part. What is our part? What is our role? How do we live out the new life that God has injected into us? Let's talk about my role. Now, we are all at different points in our spiritual journeys. I look around the room, and there are probably some who have been Christ followers for many, many, many years. Maybe that's you. For some, you are a brand new Christian. For some, perhaps it was years ago that you put your faith in Christ and you wonder, am I even still a Christian? The struggles continue on. We are all at different points in our spiritual journeys. The key is that we do our part. We fulfill our role. God has done his. We live out our role pursuing this new life that God has given us, sending our roots down so we can become the people God intends us to be. Now, Chapter 3 holds two keys for us in how you and I live out our role. These are important keys. And the first one is to keep perspective. And this is how Paul starts it in chapter 3. Since you have been raised to life with Christ, you, you set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand, Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Some, some Bible versions say, set your heart and your mind on heaven. Or set your heart and mind on heavenly realities. In other words, keep perspective. Some years ago, I read a book called Lifestyle Discipleship by Jim Peterson. And he introduced me to a diagram that I've used for a long time. Maybe you've seen me use it before. But this kind of helps me understand why people do what they do and how they can change. In fact, anthropologists use this diagram to describe how cultures, why they are the way they are and how they can change, why you and I are the way we are and how we can change. At the center of each person's life is what we call a worldview. It's how you answer the big questions of life. Why am I here? How should I live? Where am I going? Is there a God or are there gods? All these questions that are huge and how a person answers these questions will determine how they live out their life. How so? Because the worldview eventually translates into what we ascribe importance to. The things that motivate us. If a person has a worldview that, that, that says, I am just a people are just biological accidents then that person is going to value human life differently than a person whose worldview says God has created people in his image. 
So our worldview and our values ultimately translate into our behavior. Now, this diagram obviously is an oversimplification. But what it's telling us is that we become what we think. We become what we set our hearts and minds on, which is what Paul is telling us to do. Real change happens from the inside out. Now, I can't, don't have time to go into the heresy that existed at the time Paul wrote to the Colossians, but the heresy was, well, just basically behavioral modification. Do this, do this, don't touch, don't taste, don't do these things, and you will bring things under control in your life. And Paul's saying, that's not true. Now, he wasn't against certain rules, but he's saying we start at the center. What is your worldview? What is your perspective? Make sure it is clear and it is Christ-centered. What is our worldview? What should this look like? What should our worldview look like? And Paul takes us there. In the very next verses, he says, For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So right there, we see some things that should help shape our worldview, that should then translate into how we value things and our behavior. Remember, we're looking for the fruit that should hang off the life, our lives as we follow Christ, sink our roots down deep. What are some of the spiritual realities that should help shape our worldview? Let me read some of them to you. Jesus died for me so I could live. God has reached into me and given me new life. My life is in Christ. My identity is in Christ. I am a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. God has poured his spirit into me. He lives within me by his Holy Spirit. One day Jesus will come again and I will share in his glory. Paul is simply saying, keep perspective on these things. Set your heart and your minds on things above and you watch what happens because your worldview will translate into your values and translate into your behavior. Now, what is the primary way we reshape our worldview? We keep our eyes on the things that we just talked about. There's no shortcut here. It's, it's getting to know Scripture. That's why I started the service by the challenge to read Colossians through. Not just Colossians, but the entire Bible. I, I, I talked to a guy the other day, and he was telling me how he became a Christian, and he took a dare. Somebody at work dared him to read the Bible, and he did. He started reading the Bible, and he became a Christ follower. There's something strong and powerful about God's word. And you may be a Christ follower, but just only rely on what we say here on Sundays. If you've never read the Bible, pick it up and start reading it. One of the best things we can do is simply say, God, I really want to learn from you. Teach me. I'm going to read here. Inform me what I need to know. There's many things in the Bible I don't understand, but there's many things that I can understand. So reading Scripture nourishes the soul, and what it does is it informs our worldview so we can have real change from the inside out. So the very first thing we do is we keep perspective. We become what we think. 
We are to set our hearts and our minds on things above, on Christ. And reading Scripture is a huge part of that. Now, there's God's role, my role, and my role includes keeping perspective. But, but once I have a developing Christian worldview, it enables me to do the very things that Paul is about to tell us what we can do. Now, essentially, get, get, to, get to work. But before I get into to what Paul says, I'd like to um, sort of frame the dynamics that are at work in every Christian's life. If you're a Christ follower, these dynamics are true of you as we talk about getting to work. I keep perspective. I get to work. What's true? What are the dynamics that are at work? When you became a Christ follower, some things changed immediately in your life. I love this list, and there's more than these, but listen to the things that happened immediately when you put your faith in Jesus. You went from death to life. No longer in debt to sin. No more IOU to God. You were made alive in Christ. No longer aliens to God, but now family with God. The Holy Spirit lives within you. New life. And we could go on. But there were some things that did not change immediately in your life. For example, your brain cells didn't change. Your storehouse of memories did not change. You still had the same body, temperament, personality. The behavior and emotional patterns stayed the same. And even though your sins were forgiven, we all still have that sin nature, that bent towards sin living within us. That will be with us until the day Jesus comes again. But the point is this. Even though some things changed immediately, some things didn't. We are like a mixed bag, and the Holy Spirit who lives within now wants to enhance and redirect the good and shake up and get rid of the bad, and that just takes time. In a sense, as one author puts it, it's like we're in a civil war, Christians are. You know, ever since birth, our sinful nature has been with us and, and it knows its way around in our lives. It, it has seniority. And then when a person becomes a Christ follower, God reaches in, gives us new life, injects his Holy Spirit into us, and the Holy Spirit is like a newcomer. And the Holy Spirit's job is to redirect us to what is right and good and pleasing to God and give us strength to do what is right and not do what is wrong. And because of this, the bent towards sin and the indwelling Holy Spirit, there is like a civil war that goes on. There is conflict, and we feel it all the time. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 7, where he says, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. But we have a new power now in our lives. The Holy Spirit lives within a new life a developing worldview centered on spiritual realities. And because of all of that, we can do what Paul says next. And this is what Paul says. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy for a greedy person as an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God it's coming. Let's stop there for a minute. I mean, do, do you see a list of your struggles on the screen? Uh, just raise your hand if you do. 
I mean, that was a joke. Don't. What Paul's giving us a sample of the things that people struggle with, right? And what he says is put it to death. In other words, these are not things to wink at. These are not things to just go, oh, shucks, it's no big deal. It's a big deal. So Paul says, do whatever it takes to get rid of these things in our lives. It matters. Over in his letter to the, to the Romans, he writes out, he writes, put to death the misdeeds of the body. Now, maybe you don't see your struggle on this screen, right? So, so Paul continues, gives us another chance. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Maybe you see what you struggle with there. Again, Paul is just simply giving us a, a sampling of what we struggle with. But his point is, it's, just, it's serious stuff. This is a big deal. So put it to death. Get rid of it. You probably don't know the name John Owen. He, he was a pastor theologian back in the 1600s in Great Britain. He wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. And in his book, he writes these words, Kill it, or it will kill you. Now think about that for a moment. Kill it, or it will kill you. It will take you under. Deal with it. Kill it, or it could kill you even people around us, if we don't get a grasp on the things that pull us down. Put it under before it puts you under. It is a process. I think about Paul's letter to the Philippians where he writes, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Well, if we aren't serious about our faith, we should fear and tremble because of the the fallout it can, have, it can cause in my life and the lives of those around me. So, so the reason Paul can tell us to put things to death, to get rid of certain things, to get rid of old ways of life and start new ways of life, the reason Paul can tell us that is because now, because of new life put within us by God, we can do it. And so he continues, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn how to uh, as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. It, you know what? It doesn't matter who you are. Gender, color, um, socioeconomic status, nothing. It doesn't matter where you are in your spiritual journey. There's always a place to start. It's a process. And God says, we have the ability to put away the old nature and to put on the new nature. But how do you do that? N.T. Wright is a, is a theologian and a modern-day writer. He's written a bunch of books. And so he tells the story of when he learned to play golf as a kid. Did any of you take golf lessons when you were a kid? He was a baseball player, and so he held the, the golf club a certain way, you know, with a baseball grip. That's why so many baseball players have a hard time playing golf, not just because of the grip, but just because of they, how they swing at it. So he had to learn a new way to golf, and I want to read you his words, because this kind of helps us understand the process that we must go through in putting off the old nature, putting it to death, and putting on the new nature, sending our roots down deep so we can grow up big and strong. 
a tree with fruit in our lives. And this is what N.T. Wright says. The first thing my instructor did was change my grip. I used to hold it like a baseball club, but he interlocked my fingers and said this would help me hit the ball straighter and longer. Though I believed him, my new grip felt so uncomfortable. I wanted to go back to my old grip so badly, but he kept saying to me, keep gripping it like this. After a while, it will feel natural. It took me months and months for it to feel natural, but it but eventually it did. And not only that, my swing and my score both improved. When, when Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, tells us to put on our new nature on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, it will be very uncomfortable because our old life is natural. But over time, when we put on these qualities of this new life with God's help, it will become more and more comfortable while our old life will feel less and less natural. It is a process, but eventually, eventually, as we put off the old, put on the new, as we learn to, to send our roots down, this is what happens. And these are the last words from Paul I want to share from chapter 3. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with, and here's the virtues that we mentioned at the beginning of the message, tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive one another. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Who doesn't want those in their life? I want those in my life, and those who are closest to me want these in my life. But I need to take serious my role. God has a role. He's done it through Christ. Now I have a role, keeping perspective and getting to work. This is the life of a person who has sent their roots down deep, this is the life of a, of a person who's planted themselves in Christ. This is the life of a person who has a Christ-centered worldview. This is the life of a person who knows they are in a civil war, but keeps on fighting, keeps getting up, and presses forward. Now, in terms of next steps, <clears throat> um, let me go back. Just, just the importance of taking God's word into our lives. It's, you know, one verse we didn't read. It's in, it's in chapter 3, verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Paul kind of gives away the key to developing that worldview. Let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. Read God's word. Now, there's a few other things we can do with our, to, to advance our new lives in Christ. One coming up is baptism. Um, that's this, uh, in just a couple weeks, but the classes for that is next week. Now, baptism is not just demonstrated by Jesus, but he commands it. If you've never been baptized, do this. That this will take you another degree in your spiritual life. So check that out. You can go to our website and sign up and, or call in. But the next one is just a retreat for kids. I, they do this every year. I love it. Uh, but, but this is... This is an opportunity for these kids to come together and to learn God's word together. And this year they're studying the life of King David. In God's word it says that King David had a heart after God. And the kids are going to learn, how do I get a heart that is after God? 
And the very last thing I'll, I'll mention, it's really fun to, to, to note the different short-term mission opportunities coming up. We've never been to Cuba before. We've never done anything with Filter of Hope before. It's one of our missionaries we support. We're going to be providing clean water and the water of hope that comes through Christ. Um, Pittsburgh Project, that's for middle school students and their parents, and that's going to be awesome. Uh, Burundi again this year. Uh, Mexico, an intergenerational opportunity. And then Kenya, we've never been there before either, but this will be sports-oriented as well as a variety of other things. Expand your world. Enlarge your heart. These are all opportunities to express our new life that's in Christ, old to new. Let's pray together. And now, God, thank you for the, the, the good news that comes through Jesus. You have done for us through Christ what we could never do for ourselves. You have given us new life through Christ. Now, would you give us the grace, the wisdom, the strength to live out that new life? We need your help. In Christ's name we pray and we praise you. Amen.